Hey everybody, before we get started, I want to make a quick correction to something we say right at the end. Um, We are going to be at the American Anthropological Association Conference uh, in San Jose from the 15th to the 17th of November. So that's this coming Thursday the 15th through Saturday the 17th, not the 14th to the 16th, as I said when I couldn't read my calendar for a hot second. So we hope to see you there. Enjoy the show. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today, we are taking you on a journey to a place that neither of us knew much about before starting to research it, but it is fascinating, and I'm so glad we're doing this topic. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, you're welcome, uh, because I'm the <laughs> one that <laughs> I'm the one that uh kind of discovered this because I was, as we've mentioned yes, yes. before, we You're were indispensable. To, yes, of course. Yes. Um, we, Anna and I went to college together and I was reading the alumni bulletin of said college and there was a special feature on a graduate, uh, like a fellow alumnus of our school um, who happens to be the chair of the anthro department at American University, and his name mm-hmm. is uh, Professor Chaparuja Kusimba, Chap Kusimba, and it was talking about his work, his recent work, and uh, some interviews that he's done, and it was so cool. It was so cool, and I sent it to Anna, and I was like, um, let's talk about this, and now we shall. We did. We are. We will. Let's do it. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna tell you about some work on the Swahili coast and some of the archaeology of the Swahili coast, which is on the eastern side of Africa. Mm-hmm. And so first, Anna, help me figure out our timelines. What's going on in the past on the East African coast? <laughs> All of it. <laughs> yeah, real quick. I got about so, thirty-five minutes. <laughs> okay, so. The most important thing to start with, I think, we're not going to start with all of all of human evolution in Eastern Africa. Instead, we're going to cut to around 300 BCE when people sharing languages in the Bantu family living along the Niger River in West Africa started to migrate south. And this is called the Bantu expansion. And they gradually took over territory from other groups along the way. And this expansion went mainly southeast through the rainforest in the middle of the continent to the grasslands on the other side. And about the same time in Europe, the Romans were conquering North Africa. So they had they had spread out of, you know, Rome and then Egypt when Roman North Africa converted to Christianity in the 300s CE. A lot of people in Sudan and Ethiopia converted as well. By the 400 CE, the Bantu had taken over some of the east coast of Africa and some of the grasslands in southern Africa. All of this is is happening around the same time. There's all of this movement in waves southwards, but then also from Rome, there's the Roman and then the Christian expansion. So all of this plays a part in the extremely like global and diverse um, role that Eastern Africa had to play in in this part of the world, which I'm I'm really glad we're doing this now, and I I'm sort of chagrined that I knew so little about it 
before. Yeah, yeah, and it's something that is um, is a real shame that that we we don't know this. But something that Professor Kasimba talks about in one of the interviews that I'm going to share. Um, in the show notes, is that there's this double standard for people that are, if someone is studying this very global, globalized archaeology or ancient history of Europe or the Mediterranean, they're they're given permission to take years and years to learn all the languages, to read the histories, and and learn all of these different uh, historical and cultural traditions in order to be an expert. But there's this expectation that there isn't the same amount of preparation to do the same thing in his corner of the world where he studies because you have people um, who are writing and learning in Arabic, in Kiswahili or Swahili and various languages all over the world that are arguably more difficult than Latin and Greek for the English speaker. And and simplified even, there's this sort of idea that Africa didn't really contribute much to the medieval and, and post-medieval world. Yeah. And that is absolutely not true. And yeah. Gonna... And so a lot of people, by the time they find out that it's incredibly complex and fascinating, they're uh, kind of behind because they're already in grad school <laughs> and they, they <laughs> learn about it then and they're like, oh, I got to start over. But so what we we have these descriptions of East Africa f- from authors in the classical and Hellenistic world. So we can learn about what what sailors from more around the Mediterranean think when they end up down there. Um, and so we have travelers and merchants from so the, the Persian or Arabian Gulf um, and Western India. They've been coming to East African coasts since early in the first millennium um, CE. Actually, they were coming from before then, but we didn't they didn't weren't writing about it. So we've right. got we, yeah. So they had been coming for a long, long time, uh, but they start writing about it and writing these half geographies for reference, half travelogues. Lonely uh, planet. Yeah, yeah. And so there's one of the Periplus. So it's just the sailing around the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea. So that's just sailing around the Red Sea. And so it's a third century mariner's guide that we think was written in Alexandria and written in Greek. And um, Ptolemy's Geography, that one lists kind of a string of marketplaces along the coast. So those I wonder were- if it has little symbols along each of them, like how many little like drachma signs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that one's expensive. We oh, shouldn't go a, to that one. That's a three drachma sign. Like that's definitely for date night. Yeah. Um, like cheap eats along the Eritrean coast. <laughs> uh, so, but in the Periplus, chapter 15 is dev- dedicated to Adzania, which we think could be the li- little littoral area. So the coastal area south of present day Somalia. Yes. The coastal area, not like the real actual literal area. <laughs> excavations and sort of surveys have found uh, Roman era coins along the coast. Um, And so that confirms the existence of some kind of trade. So somebody was flinging coins around. Yeah. Somebody was showing up and dropping money there. Um, And Ptolemy's geography refers to a town called Rapta as a metropolis of a political entity called Adzania. So Adzania exists. Rapta exists. 
and Adzania has been an, is a name that's been applied to various parts of southeastern uh, tropical Africa. So from a portion of the southeast African coast extending from Ken- what's now Kenya uh, to perhaps as far south as what's now Tanzania. This area was inhabited by southern Cushitic-speaking populations until a wave of Bantu expansion. Are the, is that what in sort of the, the Egyptian world, are those the Cushites? Yes. Okay. So Pliny the Elder talks about an Adzanian Sea, which could be the Red Sea, could not be, <laughs> could just okay. be the Indian Ocean. Um, and in by the third century of the Common Era, the same region is known in Chinese as Zesan. Yeah, which we're going to talk about this, but that shows that there were connections to oh, yeah. Asia, which is oh, yeah, extremely yeah. cool. East Africa and China knew all about each other. Um, And so archaeologists haven't yet found the location of Rapta. So Rapta is a lost city. I love a lost city, don't you? (laughs) Oh, I love I love a good lost city. Yeah. The thought is that maybe it's it was on the delta of the Rafiji River and Deltas are very large and very silty, and there's a high rate of sedimentation. So yeah, stuff gets buried really fast. Yeah, so it could it could be it could be very much lost and remain lost because of the the river activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after after this this Hellenistic and so also Hellenistic period, you've got the Chinese writing about it too. Um, nobody talked about it for a long time. Uh, so there is a well. N- nobody whose materials we've found and read talked about it. Right. We don't. We don't have um, documents. And and so often, and this is something that came up in like my own research when I was in school. Uh, polities that are writing only write about the places that they are actively interested in, and if they aren't interested in them, they treat them like they don't exist. And so, in the history of archaeology, there's an unfortunate as- assumption that if somebody's not talking about it, there's nothing there. Um, I think, yeah, fortunately, I think that's beginning to really shift Yeah, in, and, in and terms it, of like archaeological questioning. Oh, definitely. Definitely the last like 50 years. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's been changing for a while, mm-hmm. uh, but sort of the origins of archaeology. And so conversations about this, this region pick back up um, in aerogeographical treatises. And so during the Islamic empire, you've got, you've got people who are just traveling for travel and sake. Um, and you've also got naval, like naval and kind of mercantile uh, travelers as well. So that's sort of a a history of other people's history of this place. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the main reasons we know things about the Swahili coast is because it had these very active Uh, robust trade relationships with lots of different parts of the world. One of the unfortunate things that that Amber and I found as we researched this is that this part of the world for a long time was thought to have been kind of a backwater, an area that didn't really contribute much to an era elsewhere, like the Middle Ages, the the Islamic period, um, that that were, things were really hopping elsewhere. Um, And it turns out, go figure, that things were really hopping in Eastern Africa too. So it's almost a good thing that this part of the world was sort of ignored for a while because it means that early archaeologists left it alone. Yeah, there's the silver lining there. Yeah. 
So the research that has been done on the Swahili coast has been more recent, systematic, and problem-oriented. And so this has really enabled us to understand the complex social structures that arose in Eastern and Southern Africa in the context of, of global connections and the local ecology and the historical context of all of the the classical and later periods that we know much more about. And so here are some snapshots about East Africa's connections with regions to its east and west. Oh, we're going to have an audio montage. I know. (laughs) Put some like very jazzy 80s music behind this. So we're going to start off with food and then we're going to move on to lots and lots of stuff. Oh, the stuffication of East Africa? We're going to stuffocate you. Still Um, still not that. Food first. So uh, many of the crops that are now staple foods in a lot of Africa were first experimented with and domesticated in Asia. Some of the African domesticates, including sorghum, millet, and coffee, are widely consumed by contemporary Asians as staples. So there was a lot of back and forth of foodstuffs. Contemporary with domestication or contemporary with now or what? At the same time that Asian foods were going into Africa, African domesticates were going into Asia. Okay. There was back and forth. Yeah, because I know that But also they are still consumed from foodstuff to stuff stuff. Uh, We know about ancient connections between Africa and Asia, including and especially China, because of the numerous archaeological remains that have been recovered at many sites across the continent. And by the continent, I mean Africa. Artifacts including Indo-Pacific beads, glass, Middle Eastern glazed pottery and jewelry, and Chinese stoneware and porcelain, among other things, have been recovered at nearly all medium to large settlements along the eastern and southern African subcontinent from the Tang Dynasty, which is 618 to 907 CE, to the present. All of this material, which is of non-African origin, Um, is an example of the global connections, contributions, and complexity of Africa's past. And like I said before, this is a big departure from the long-held and totally inaccurate narrative that Africa was isolated from Eurasia. And with the exception of North Africa, and by that we pretty much mean Egypt, um, didn't really contribute to global civilization. That's absolutely not true. Yeah. And so apart from um, even beyond East Asia, East Africa has tons of connections with Eurasia and the Middle East. So tell me about more stuff. More stuff. Archaeologists and historians have documented evidence of biological, cultural, linguistic, commercial, and technical communication uh, between East Africa and the Middle East beginning from the early first millennium CE. And so the Periplus that I mentioned before from the third century. Uh, the sailing around book. The sailing around book. Uh, mentions that iron lances, hatchets, daggers, and awls made at Mutsa, which is east of Aden, so that's that's in Yemen, constituted trade items destined for African markets. Uh, trade items from the East African coast made for foreign markets in India, the Middle East, and China um, included marine products such as tortoise shells in ambergris. Whale barf! Yep, wh- Mm, smelly, smelly whale barf. Did you um, did you know that? Um, oh, now I can't remember which king it was. I think it was a Charles in France. But his his favorite dish delicacy was ambergris with scrambled eggs. Ew! It's so that. Of course, well, I didn't know that. That's <laughs> so gross. Well, now you can't unknow it. Ugh! And now our listeners can't unknow it. Ugh! Well, there was that, um, and then there's. <laughs> Animal products, such as ivory, rhinoceros horn, and, and cat skins. Oh. Um, 
and um, and and vegetable products like um, mangrove poles, wood, and timber. And so those those would those would go too. So the turtle shells in ambergris were in really high demand in India and China as luxury goods. Ivory, uh, rhinoceros horns. So so ivory from um, elephants and rhinoceros, rhinoceroi. Um, and leopard skins were exported to yeah. India, China, and the Gulf, um, which is where I know about them from. And so timber for building was huge in the Gulf um, because most of the Arabian Peninsula doesn't have a lot of trees in it. And, and so if you're going to build larger buildings, you need <laughs> larger roof beams. Um, because otherwise your building is only as long as a palm tree grows, which isn't that tall. Just a series of very narrow sheds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, the timber and then the aromatic products were, uh, um, it's like resin like, uh, yeah. So it would be incense. It would, yeah, it would be, um, scenty resins. So that was a huge deal in the Gulf because a lot of the Gulf had their economy was very much based on it. And so they would sort of outsource when necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so demand for African timber in the Gulf was high enough to be reported by Ibn Halkal, um, in about 960 CE. So it was, somebody known. was writing about it. Yeah. So, so that's, that's sort of in the, the raw materials and then other stuff includes like textiles. Um, so silk and cotton were spun in, um, Mogadishu, which is now in Somalia, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, great. Um, Pate Island, (laughs) the fanciest Island, (laughs) um, Zanzibar, Kilwa, Mahilaka and other towns and, were, were known for their products uh, that were widely traded in Eastern Africa, reaching as far as Egypt. And so they would move up the Eastern African coast. And then um, once, so all, so trade across the Red Sea um, has been huge, has really been popping for like 3000 years. Yeah. Further South along the Eastern African coast really opened up their options So upon their visit to the Kenyan coast, the Portuguese were impressed by the high quality silk manufactured there. And this Um, is much later. This is like after the the Middle Ages. So so the the Portuguese showed up in the early 16th century. So the Portuguese did their own colonial thing in this part of the world. There's much more to Portuguese colonialism than Brazil. Um, And you often see like the the colonial period and at sites like these uh, because the Portuguese were in Goa in India. They were on Bahrain. They were at Kilwa, which I'll talk about in a minute. But the Portuguese were here. The Portuguese were in play uh, by the 16th century here. Um, But for a long time before that, mining and the working of iron was an important industrial activity at Malindi and other Swahili towns. So um, metallurgy was a big deal here. Like, and the quality of the iron products made and the steel um, made in East Africa was so impressive that it was listed, um, that it was added to the list of African exports to India by Indian merchants who regularly visited the coast with the aid of annual monsoon winds. So it was like made it to consumer reports. Yeah, basically. Um, and so it became part of, um, so the, the, the merchants that controlled trade around the Indian ocean, they were like, no, we we are stopping here. Like every year, you gotta go and pick up your inventory of iron stuff, 
uh, to go trade everywhere else you're going. Because it's the good stuff. Yeah, that's the, the best stuff you can get. And Al Masudi um, was a, a writer who visited a tra- like a what are they called a traveler yeah a traveler who visited yeah, a East travel Africa writer. <laughs> a travel writer yes yeah right that thing that I do um, <laughs> uh, who visited East Africa in 912 CE left one of the most cogent descriptions of the iron industry on the coast in his the meadows of gold and the mines of gems. Which sounds like it would be a really great, like, thrilling adventure fantasy read, but I know it's not. See, I know it's, like, that descriptions of mine. sounds like one of those, like, family sagas. Like, it sounds like the Thornbirds to me. Uh, all right. Well, we we have different <laughs> uh, literary yeah, I guess we frameworks, know. I think. <laughs> um, and so all of this is to say that uh, during the Middle Ages – and before and after, um, and especially after the ninth century, and I'm going to tell you why in a few minutes, um, East African towns were really important centers of production and venues where transcontinental exchange of goods and natural resources took place. Yeah. So before we uh, get to that, though, let's talk about some of those towns. Yeah. Tell me about those towns. I'm going to. So the first one that we're going to talk about is Kilwa Kisiwani, also known as Kilwa uh, or Kiloa in Portuguese, but we're going to refer to it as Kilwa. And it's the best known of about 35 medieval trading communities located along the Swahili coast of Africa. So Kilwa is on an island off the coast of Tanzania, modern Tanzania, and north of Madagascar. And archaeological and historical evidence shows that together, the sites conducted an active trade between the interior of Africa and the Indian Ocean uh, during the 11th and through the 16th centuries CE. So during its heyday, Kilwa was one of the principal ports of trade on the Indian Ocean, and they traded gold, ivory, iron, and slaves from interior Africa, including Moene Mutabe, south of the Zambezi River. Um, And then the things that they imported included cloth and jewelry from India and porcelain and glass beads from China. The archaeological excavations at Kilwa, which we will talk about in a moment, recovered the most Chinese goods of any Swahili town, including a profusion, a veritable profusion of Chinese coins. And the first gold coins struck south of the Sahara after the decline at Aksum were minted at Kilwa. And this was presumably for facilitating international trade. So having a gold standard. And one of them was found at the Mweni Mutabebe site of Great Zimbabwe, which is another fascinating place in Africa that we will devote an entire episode to someday. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll devote an entire episode to Great Zimbabwe and Aksum, Mm -hmm. um, which is up on the Horn of Africa. Mm -hmm. Um, And so given a little bit of history of Kilwa, uh, the earliest substantial occupation at Kilwakisawani dates to the 7th, 8th century CE when the town was made up of rectangular wooden or wattle and daub buildings um, and a small iron smelting operations. Um, and so imported wares from the Mediterranean were identified among the archaeological levels dated to this period, indicating that Kilwa was already tied to the international trade at this time. Which it was is, a small player. Yeah, yeah, but they were still a player. So yeah, that's yeah. something that, that shows that it's so trade, especially like intercontinental trade and interregional trade, wasn't limited to hubs. Uh, no, it's they, everywhere along the, the routes. Yeah, which shows that there is an economy that extends beyond just like elites, like uh, so beyond like religious or political centers engaging with each other. Right. It's, people need stuff. Yeah. And, and people 
people need stuff and people want stuff. And so you've That's got true, stuff. You want stuff from far away. Yeah. Um, and so Kiowa became a major trade center itself from the 1100s through the early 1500s. And according to legend, the the sultanate there at uh, Kiowa was founded in the 10th century. So remember, we've got the earliest the earliest occupation like 200 years before that. So remember that um, mm-hmm. in the 10th century CE, you know, the sultanate was founded by a sultan. It comes what? with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this guy. Um, Ali ibn al-Hassan Shirazi. So that name means that Ali was the son of Hassan, and Hassan was at the time the, the Sultan of Shiraz. And so Shiraz is still Shiraz, and it's in Iran now. Oh, he so, was literally Prince Ali. Oh, yep. Wealthy was he. Fair use. <laughs> uh, so... The, the legend states that, that Ali was the son of the Sultan and one of his Abyssinian um, slaves. Concubines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of how he both has royal heritage, but also dark skin. And so okay. that, that, was, that was sort of co-opted later by rulers to sort of legitimate and explain why they had the physical attributes that they did, but could be descended from a Persian guy. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. After his father's death, his his brothers sort of conspired against him and disenfranchised him and kicked him out. So he's like, "Well, I'm oh, gonna bummer. go get my I'm gonna get my own sultanate." So um, he hopped on a boat and he sailed down around the Arabian Peninsula and arrived at the island of Kilwa, uh, which he bought <laughs> and established his own sultanate there. I'm gonna buy an island. Yeah. So. <laughs> Bye. So he so um, he established the Sultanate of Kiowa, um, but Ali ibn al Hassan wasn't the one who brought Islam to Africa. Far from it. Um, and so the history of Islam on the continent is as old as the religion itself. Really early on in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad's early followers were run out of Mecca because um, they didn't like the radical ideas that Muhammad was spreading among the more disenfranchised of the population. Um, that keeps happening. Yeah, yeah. They're like, wait, wait, wait. You're trying to get, like, our slaves to, like, feel like they have agency in their lives? What are you talking get about? Out. Yeah, and so they also had, a, a like, the polyethe- polytheistic religion there in, right. in Mecca. Um, they're like, and, wait, how many gods? No, yeah, get they're out. like, no, one? Mm-mm, nope, bye. And so they fled to um, Abyssinia, or Abisha, which is there in the Horn of Africa, and given asylum there. And so that was known as the first hedra, so the first migration. That's modern-day Ethiopia, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, ish. Yeah. So Ethiopia, Eritrea. Because I have been to numerous Ethiopian restaurants that were called Habesha. Yeah. And now I see why. Yeah, that's, yeah. And so Abyssinia is the Greek transliteration of Habesha. Oh. Um, yeah. And so right. they they hopped, they crossed the Red Sea. So they, they hopped over there. Um, they were given asylum. And then some of them came back later. So, so whereas you've got um, Islam coming into the continent of Africa from uh, the caliphates. So within a couple decades of the death of the prophet, like Islam's really catching on. So hot right now. Yeah. Both like socially and also economically, because mm-hmm. there are like aspects of, of Islam that are very appealing to people that don't want to get screwed by like interest rates. And so it became like a really appealing thing in um, trade and in, in an economy. And so it spread really fast. Um, and then they established um, a political 
entity behind it. And so that's how you end up with the caliphates. So they come in through through North Africa and spread across North Africa and then down. But while all of that's happening, it's coming in separately through through trade and exchange along the the south of the Arabian Peninsula. And so the Islam that's practiced even today in East Africa is different from the Islam that's practiced throughout a lot of the rest of Africa because it came earlier and through different channels. Actually, archaeological evidence for the practice of Islam on Kilwa and in some of these uh, Swahili coast cities is is very different. So, we're, and we will we'll talk about that yeah, in a little bit. That. But yeah, that's just so that you know when we've talked about how you have conversions to Christianity and then Islam, and it's so it is. You know, people seem to very often forget that Africa is kind of in the middle of all of these things. Right, <laughs> and, and it's and it's really big. Yeah. It's not like it can't it can't have been a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, and so um and so things can come in through different directions. Yeah. Um which makes it even more complex and fascinating. So, while all these things are happening, Kilwa becomes a really large center as early as 1000 CE. So, it didn't take long. Um and that's when the we have the we find the earliest stone structures. Um and so they uh, perhaps covering as much as one square kilometer, which is about 247 acres. So that's in big. case you wanted it in acres. That's very big. Yeah. Um, and so the first substantial building at Kilwa was the Great Mosque. Um, and that it's was great. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it was uh, built in the 11th century from coral, coral quarried, woof, coral quarried. Say that five uh, times fast. I know. I can't even say it once. Uh, off the coast and then later greatly expanded. And so I didn't realize that that was like a common masonry tactic. I didn't um, either. And I mentioned it to someone that I was like, oh, these buildings are made of coral. And she was like, oh, yeah, that happens. Well, I, I knew about it from um, the Oman Peninsula. Um, because traditional architecture is coral that you sort of plaster over. Yeah. And, and so I didn't realize that it's, that it, it's much more ubiquitous because it, it makes sense if you got a ton it's, of it, got a ton a of coral. Of yeah. Yep. Um, and, and so it was later even more greatly expanded. So it became greater mosque, I guess. Um, <laughs> and so more monumental structures followed into the 14th century, including the palace of Husini Kubwa. And so around 1300, the Mahdali dynasty took over control of Kilwa, and a building program reached its peak in 1320s during the reign of Al-Hassan ibn Suleiman. Um, and so that's something that you'll see dynasties like to do, where they, they start something new and they're like, we're going to prove how great we are by building a giant building. It's and, not and- like it doesn't happen right now. Yeah. <laughs> Still happening. No, oh, yeah, no, yeah. So you may you may notice this. <laughs> Guess what? It's not a new concept. <laughs> so all over the world, <laughs> through all of time, like what if we tore this thing down and built a bigger one? Yeah. Well, let's talk about how they did that. Yeah. So these masterpieces built at Kilwa beginning in the 11th century CE, they were, like we said, constructed of coral mortared with lime. So it is very much like you said, they would they would lime plaster um, around and over things. So these buildings include stone houses, mosques, palaces, and causeways. And many of these buildings still stand, which, you know, they were well built, including the Great Mosque, 
and uh, that palace of Husuni Kubwa, and the adjacent enclosure known as the Husuni Ndongo. And these are both dated to the early 14th century. So they have lasted. The basic block work of these buildings was of fossil coral limestone. And then for the more intricate work, the architects would take porites, which is a finer grained coral, and it was cut from the living coral reef. So it wasn't fossil coral. Um, and then they would take uh, limestone and they would burn it in pits using mangrove wood until it calcined, which means that the the chemical structure of the calcium carbonate, which makes up limestone, uh, was changed. And then uh, they could mix it with water. Well, they would powder it first and mix it with water. And that would be the lime that they would use to mortar the buildings and sort of plaster it over. And lime produced in this way was probably also part of the trade system because Kilwa Island was surrounded by lots and lots of reef and had lots of reef coral. They had coral to burn, literally. I'm here uh, all week. It's a good problem to have. Visitors today, if you if you listeners were to go to Kilwa Kisiwani, you would find that the town includes two distinct and separate areas, a cluster of tombs and monuments, again, including the Great Mosque, and an urban area with coral-built domestic structures, including the House of the Mosque and the House of the Portico on the northern part. And then... Also in the urban area are several cemetery areas and the Gereza, which is a fortress built by the Portuguese in 1505. And in 2012, uh, archaeologists did a geophysical survey, and that revealed that what appears to be an empty space between the, the urban and the monumental area uh, was at one time filled with other structures. So the remains of of foundations and things were detected using uh, techniques like ground-penetrating radar. And... Um, they could see sort of the footprints of these these former buildings. And so uh, probably the building stones and, and the foundation stones of those were, were mined to um, enhance and build the monuments that exist today. Swahili towns didn't have marketplaces like many comparable cities in Europe, the Middle East, and China. Instead, um, as archaeologists are learning as they excavate these towns, trade was conducted in the courtyards, which were sort of halfway between public and private space. And similar kinds of public and private areas were common in ancient Rome as well. And so this this may be a scenario where you'd have traveling merchants that would stay with a local family and then um, if you knew that a merchant was in town, you would go visit them. Or maybe the merchants would travel from courtyard to courtyard, um, sort of, you know, peddling whatever they were selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, also to, to help with trade, um, as early as the 11th century CE, an extensive causeway system was constructed um, in the Kilwa Archipelago. And, to, and so a causeway, in case you were wondering, as baby Amber did when she first got really into Pink Floyd in third grade, uh, what, a co- <laughs> right? what a causeway is. Uh, a causeway is an embankment over like a low or wet place. And, um, and so they built these causeways uh, primarily as um, a warning to sailors, marking the highest crest of the reef so they don't run so aground. don't run aground, yeah. Yeah. And they were also used as, as causeways often are, as walkways, allowing fisher fisher people, um, <laughs> shell gatherers, and line makers uh, to safely cross the lagoon to the reef flat. And so the boats used in this area had really shallow drafts, so the, the, the bottom of the boat. They were, it means they were sort of closer to a raft than a, than a yeah. deep-bottomed boat. 
And so they, they allowed them to pass safely over the sharp, sharp reef coral. Uh, the prosperity of the port city remained intact until the last decades of the 14th century when... The Black Death. Yep. Wah, wah. Wah, wah. Um, yep. And so the Black Death had a huge toll on international trade, not only because everybody was dead, but also because everybody who wasn't dead was convinced that by trading internationally and having people from other places where everybody was dead coming to you, you too would be dead. Yeah. I mean, they weren't totally I mean, they weren't wrong. wrong. Yeah. So that has been... Epidemiology 101. <laughs> um, so Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. <laughs> By the early decades of the 15th century, um, new stone houses and mosques were being built up in Kilwa. And then in 1500, Portuguese explorer, well... <laughs> explorer. <laughs> Portuguese, like, that's half between explorer and exploiter. And I was just like, I could go with it. Yeah, you're uh, not wrong. <laughs> Portuguese explorer Pedro Alvarez Cabral visited Kilwa and reported seeing houses made of coral stone, including the ruler's 100-room palace. So many rooms. Islamic Middle Eastern design. Who are you putting so, in all those rooms? I guess if you just have 100 friends. One would have to stand outside. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> poor Steve. Oh, Steve. Oh, Steve. Implicated in the old Javanese <laughs> <laughs> curse text and also kicked out of... The palace. Um, Poor Steve. Poor Steve. Um, So the dominance of the Swahili coastal towns over maritime trade ended with the arrival of the Portuguese, who reoriented international trade towards Western Europe and the Mediterranean. Mm. So, yeah, so they came in and built forts everywhere and were like, no, we got this from here. And everyone else was like, oh. Uh, Okay. Okay. Everyone Um, else was was Steve. (laughs) Yeah, everyone (laughs) Yes, the Global South is a real Steve. <laughs> yeah, and so that's, um, and so a different kind of global economy uh, emerged with when the Portuguese got there and one that really favored Western Europe um, as opposed to being somewhat more mutually beneficial. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And... Something that came along with the Portuguese dominance of Swahili coastal towns was European histories about the sites. And so that is one tiny silver lining here because that's why archaeologists became interested, first of all, in Kilwa. Because of two 16th century histories about the site, including the Kilwa Chronicle. What? I know, that sounds like that's a why, like a Jason Bourne book or whatever. Oh, again, different people. I was like, oh, it's my favorite Coheed and Cambria album. Oh my God. <laughs> so uh, the excavations started at Kilwa in the 1950s, and then uh, they, they've really been ongoing since then. And Kilwa and its sister port, Songo Minara, which we will talk about momentarily, were named UNESCO World Heritage Sites in 1981. And this is super important because, well, in 2004, Kilwa Kisiwani was inscribed on UNESCO's list of world heritage in danger. And that is because there is a serious rapid deterioration of the archaeological and monumental heritage of these two islands due to things like erosion and the incursion of vegetation. So, for example, the eastern section of the Palace of Husuni Kubwa is progressively disappearing. The rainwater is causing uh, erosion on the soil, and that is accentuating the risk of collapse of the remaining structures that sit on the edge of a cliff. And then um, 
in some ways, vegetation helps because the vegetation that grows on that cliff sort of limits the progression of erosion, but also the roots of that vegetation get into the, the limestone masonry and start, start breaking it up. And so the actual buildings can start crumbling. And so the World Monuments Fund included Kilwa on its 2008 watch list of 100 most endangered sites. And since 2008, um, that fund has been supporting conservation work on various buildings on Kilwa. Which is great. And hopefully, maybe the, the 2018 watch list, <laughs> maybe we're getting better. But let's talk about Songo Minara for a bit. Let's. So the people, so Songo Minara was part of the Kilwa Sultanate. So when Ali came So when Prince it, Ali <laughs> sailed off in a huff to found his own sultanate. <laughs> well, he, it included which also he started he he started further up on the horn and like i guess just really irritated everyone to the point where they're like get out and he's like fine so it wasn't even like a first, <laughs> a first well, he, go. he he sailed off in two huffs <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um and so song of Minara was um you know it was like a suburb <laughs> it was <laughs> so, oh the, god the commute to kill was murder <laughs> Uh, and so it was it was part of it was part of the sultanate uh but it was his own city but so connected to Kilwa. Um they spoke Kiswahili which is related to today's Swahili and were part of an enormous cultural network that spanned the coast from Somalia down to Tanzania. And like the um Arab tribes that they traded with the people of the Swahili coast were Muslim and some of their most breathtaking architecture can be seen in the towers that crown their mosques. So the, the, the minarets, the minars yeah. um, of the mosques. And according to, uh, you're ready to have your mind blown. Um, according to one of the archeologists who is now excavating at Sangha Minara, um, archaeologist Stephanie Wynne Jones of the University of York says it's very possible that Islamic practices in medieval Songo Minar were different from the ones popular in the same region today. Which things change. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it takes things change. Um and so according to nope, as- sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of my mind exploding. <laughs> no, go ahead. Um according to ethnographic research uh, Swahili society is traditionally matrilocal, meaning that um, after marriage, the man moves in with his wife's family, and which which some might say doesn't seem to jive with the more socially conservative form of Islam practice on the Swahili coast today. When I mentioned that Islam came differently to this area than elsewhere, yes. um, trade with Oman, and so the Sultanate of Oman, trading with them is really what informed their uh, flavor of Islam, which is called Ibadism or Ibadiyya. So most people understand Islam as being either Sunni or Shia, and that's that's not that's a very limited view. Um, Sunni and Shia are the two largest denominations of Islam, but they're not the only ones. In early Christianity, you have the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church, right? And now they're the, and now they yeah. have different calendars. Yeah, so you have something that is a disagreement that happens at a very formative time in the religion. And then they sort of go their, their separate ways. And at times there's sort of brand loyalty that results in discord, but for the most part, people are like, I do what I do. And so it's sort of the same religion, but there's a different denomination. Right. And so Ibadia came to the Swahili coast there. So they're, 
uh, version of Islam looks more like what you find in Oman, um, which you don't really see in most other parts of the world. One of the key pieces of evidence for this earlier form of Islam can be, so the so what was practiced there in the Middle Ages, uh, can be found on Sangha Minara, where University of Bristol archaeologist Mark Horton believes he's uncovered a mosque that was purpose-built for women. So a ladies' mosque. <laughs> um, and Horton is an expert on mosque architecture and believes that such a mosque would be unique in the Islamic world and would have reflected the importance of women in Swahili society in the Middle Ages. So it's possible that women prayed alongside the men in the many other mosques of the town and eventually were segregated into their own mosque as their roles changed over time. Um, we don't know for sure. And Horton says that it's always possible that the building was for some other purpose, uh, perhaps um, a madrasa, so like a Quranic school, uh, but they still haven't figured it out yet. And so for both Horton and Wynne Jones, excavating Sango Minara is a rare privilege. It's a mostly undisturbed site, um, largely ignored by scientists and locals alike unfortunately. Um, so partly it's been preserved so well because archaeologists from an earlier era didn't believe it was a legitimate African ruin oh boy. Um, because it had sophisticated architecture and therefore must have been created by Arab traders who wanted an outpost. Um, um, and so... It's the same idea. Of yeah. Africa didn't contribute anything. Yeah. Um, and, and like Africa couldn't take a religion and make it its own. Um, and so that idea has long been disproven. So we're not, we're not, we shouldn't be blowing any minds here today. Um, and now the archeological community accepts that the very vibrant Swahili culture was purely African in origin and that cultural influences from the Middle East cut both ways. Um, so the Swahili coast and its luxurious arts and goods were an enormous influence on their neighbors ringing the Indian ocean. Yeah. And I would be interested to see if, like, now that the the coral architecture, like the coral masonry, mm-hmm. um, I would be really interested to see um, if that was originally, if both the, the Gulf littoral and the Swahili coast kind of came up with it on their own, or if one had it with the other. Like, I'd be really interested to see how that architecture style emerged. Yeah. Because I I had no idea. And I even know about coral architecture. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really either. I, um, when I think of coral, I just think, you know, don't touch that. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's dying. It's very spiky. Oh, (laughs) just like, don't touch it. It Well, also, yeah, it's fragile, but you know, the fossilized coral, I, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it as a building material. So it's just one of the many yeah. ways that this research on the Swahili coast has expanded my worldview. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and there's so much here that is that we're going to have in future episodes. Yes. Um like I Very exciting. Yeah. I love finding new stuff. I do too. Like new to us. Yeah. New to us and embarrassing for us that it's so old to others. Yeah. But that's an embarrassment I'm okay with. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, we are going to be at the American Anthropological Association's annual meeting in San Jose next week. Whoa! I know. It's so soon. I know. It's and so we're gonna soon. Be there, we're going to be there from the 14th of November until the 16th, and we will be doing some really cool things there that we will post on our social media so that you can see it. And if you're there, you can participate. Come see us. We would love to meet you. 
And now is a great time, if you've not done so already, to follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook. We are The Dirt Podcast there, and we will be we'll be doing some Facebook living. Yes, um, we will. You can, you can see our real live faces. Yep, in the same place at the same time. Whoa. Why oh, now? On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can see all of those things smushed together in a beautiful format at thedirtpod.com. Yeah. Or you can send us an email at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And if you are going to be at the AAA meeting in San Jose, California, um, come see us. We will be yeah, there. You can see us will. on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And um, so we're going to be working on um, some super cool, super secret, super soon to be in your ears and faces content. And there's a chance that you can be a part of it. Yeah. yeah. And one way that you can be a part of this podcast and support us in a huge way by doing very little is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Please and thank you. Yes. It really, really helps us out and helps people find us. Yes. And if that's not enough for you, if you want to do more. Um, if you want to be a true hero. Yes. True podcast hero. Um, you can become a bona fide dirtbag and you can support All us on year. Patreon. Yeah. You can become a monthly subscriber or just a single time donor of any amount. Either way, we would love it. And that can be found at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And if you want to see what we intend to do with those funds, you can do that over at thedirtpod.com slash goals. See you in a few days in San Jose. Yeah. And stay tuned for cool stuff. Thanks for <laughs> listening, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.